Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Francesca Luberti. She has recently completed a PhD at the School of Biological, Earth and Environmental Sciences, UNSW Sydney. She is now doing a postdoc in the Social Endocrinology, Neuroendocrinology Lab at Nipissing University in Canada. She does research in evolutionary psychology, evolutionary biology, social psychology, and biological anthropology. And today we're going to focus mostly on the relationship between preferred mating strategies and social political orientation. And a little bit about, we're going to talk also a little bit about laughter toward the end. So Dr. Luberti, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to everyone. Thank you for having me. So, I mean, first of all, and before we really establish this relationship between mating strategies and socio-political orientation, uh, let's talk about each of them separately. So sure. when it comes to mating strategies, I mean, what are the main, let's say, behaviors, preferences, strategies that fall under the rubric of mating strategies and that are the most relevant to this discussion? Sure. Um, so mating strategies, basically, before I describe the types of mating strategies, I will give a general definition of what mating strategies are. So they are the tactics that people use to find and retain mates. And um, from an evolutionary psychology perspective, they're basically considered adaptations um, that ultimately maximize reproductive success. So it is success in finding mates and reproducing. Um, and of course, people not often consciously adopt a mating strategy to maximize the reproductive success, um, but we just assume that these are psycho psychological adaptations um, that unconsciously often uh, influence people to adopt certain behaviors, attitudes, and even cognitive processes um, to find and retain mates. And um, generally, uh, especially in relation to my research, um, I think about mating strategies um, in a way uh, that uh, certain individuals um, fall on a spectrum, basically. And on one side, certain individuals adopt long-term uh, mating strategies, for example, which means that people are more prone to form a long-term committed romantic relationships and be monogamous. And on the other side, other people might be more inclined to instead adopt short-term mating strategies, uh, which means they're more inclined to have uh, casual sex, short-term relationships, um, and in general, like sexual romantic relationships with many different people. Um, so uh, in human in the human species, there's not one mating strategy that works best for everybody. People usually adopt mating strategies that work best for them according to their own individual traits and also to the contexts, um, socio-ecological contexts that they live in. Um, so um, people not only each individual uses the mating strategy that works best for them, but also within each individual, they might switch their mating strategies um, according to the contexts that they're encountering. And also another um, way to think about mating strategies is sociosexual orientation. Um, so people with a restricted 
sociosexual orientation are um, the, let's say they're opposed to to casual sex they're not comfortable with having casual sex themselves and they're also against societal promiscuity so other people having casual sex um, whereas on the opposite end of the spectrum, people with an unrestricted sociosexual orientation are uh, comfortable with um, having casual sex. They want to have many sexual relationships themselves and are also okay with other people around them um, having casual sex. Um, so I hope that kind of answers your questions about what mating strategies are and the way that I've been conceptualizing them in my research. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think that provides us with a good basis to start from. Uh, but now, what is then socio-political orientation? So, socio-political orientation is basically the beliefs and attitudes that people hold about um, certain social and political issues. And um, I mean, I'm sure in the political literature there might be uh, other definitions, um, but in the way, again, that I have studied sociopolitical attitudes, um, I just, again, see sociopolitical orientation sort of as a spectrum. And on one side of the spectrum, there are people that have more progressive attitudes, and on the other side, um, people have more conservative attitudes. So when I mean, when I use the term sociopolitical orientation, I usually just mean, again, the beliefs and attitudes that people hold about sociopolitical issues. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now uh, explain then how do these two different things connect? I mean, mating strategies or preferred mating strategies and socio-political orientation. I mean, why is it yeah. that one would influence the other or vice versa, if that's the case? Yeah, um, so basically my interest in the study of the relationship between mating strategies and socio-political orientation really started from reading the basically the evolutionary psychology literature and um, there is especially there are some papers especially from um, researchers like Jason Whedon, uh, Doug Kenrick and Robert Kurzban and I think Adam Cohen as well. Um, one paper that they published in 2008 I believe um, showed that um, people who have a more unrestricted sociosexual orientation are also those that are less likely to attend religious ceremonies um, often. So uh, there was this connection between mating strategy orientation and religiosity. Um, And after that paper, the same group of researchers basically showed with with cross-sectional data, longitudinal data, and even experiments um, that it seems like that mating strategy orientation is what causes religiosity. So um, the general public often thinks that people are, for example, against casual sex, they want monogamy, and they are sexually restricted because they're religious. Like they learn um, from attending religious ceremony um, that you should um, be monogamous, that you should have a restricted sexual lifestyle. But um, there is evidence, um, I mean, I talked about the first paper, but over the the next um, almost 15 years, 
um, there has been much more research showing that really the causal error, uh, the, <laughs> the causal arrow um, is in the opposite direction. So it seems like because people uh, prefer uh, monogamy and are against societal promiscuity, they uh, embrace attitudes that are gonna discourage promiscuity, like religiosity in most cases, especially in the Western uh, countries where Christianity is the main religious uh, usually uh, most uh, most of uh, the core principles that they teach are also revolve around um, being monogamous and for example wait until marriage to a sex uh, and so on and so forth um, so uh, of course uh, the reason like mating strategies cannot explain all the variants of being religious is not the only explanation that is possible. But again, there seems to be like like a lot of evidence now that people might adopt certain social political attitudes like being religious because they're trying to defend their mating interests, basically. Um, and there is also, I, I should say, another like um, paper that really like influenced um, the, the research that then I did was by um, David Pinsov and Marty Asselton from UCLA. They also showed that people who are more sexually restricted are also more against gay marriage, for example, so to talk about something else other than religiosity. And they seem to, to be so. Um, especially if they stereotype gay people as being sexually promiscuous. Um, so basically, having read all this research, I was interested in um, in exploring this relationship between mating strategies and other social political attitudes more. And across several experiments, about six experiments, I consistently found that uh, social sexuality uh, significantly is significantly correlated um, with other social political dimensions. For example, I replicated the findings from um, Pinsov and Asselton and showed that sexually restricted people are more against gay rights. Um, then more sexually unrestricted people. Um, I showed um, that um, sexually restricted people are hold more sexist beliefs um, than sexually unrestricted people in the sense that um, they're more inclined to view women, for example, to hold a role of mother and wives. So they have more traditional in the Western sense that we use that word, um, than sexually unrestricted people in gender roles, in terms of gender roles. Um, and, uh, and I also found some, uh, although not very consistent and not strong evidence that perhaps sexually unrestricted people are also a little bit more pro-social uh, than um, sexually restricted people. Oh, I said it right, sexually unrestricted, a little more pro-social than restricted people in the sense that I found in one big experiment with um, over a thousand participants that um, they were more in support of um, increasing the minimum wage and access to healthcare for everybody. Um, 
but having said that, and this is an important point, um, this, these results that I just talked about from my research were all correlational. Um, so obviously I cannot prove causation from this data, it just seems that there is this, um, again, this correlation that, this, that social sexuality seems to, um, again, correlate with, with these other dimensions. But in these experiments, I was also kind of interested in seeing whether we could prove causation in the sense that um, in a lot of the experiments I did, I manipulated uh, mating circumstances, let's call it this, this way, the contexts that, um, of the mating part market uh, that people are in and see whether that would um, maybe influence the social political attitudes. Um, so maybe before I move on, I should just explain what I mean by mating market. <laughs> so yes, basically, sure. yeah, yeah, basically the mating market, just to, to define it up front, um, this is a term that um, biologists use and evolutionary psychologists um, it's basically the social arena um, where uh, men and women and, and individuals um, engage in sexual and romantic relationships. And um, biologists, and again, anthropologists and evolutionary psychologists use the term market because in certain um, theories and interpretations of sexual relationships, um, sex can be um, considered a social exchange. Uh, so one individual um, gives sex to someone in exchange, for example, of resources, time, commitment, um, and other non-sexual resources. So um, it, there are many characteristics um, in the mating market that can be manipulated. Uh, for example, in one big experiment um, with um, over 200 participants, men and women, um, we um, we basically had participants come into the lab and pretended they were going to participate in a dating experiment. And we manipulated how popular or unpopular they were with the opposite sex, um, basically. Um, so it was um, quite a, a complex experimental setup, but um, participants came into the lab again and they um, were told to record a video of themselves describing themselves to participate in a dating game. Um, and we told them ostensibly, this wasn't true, but we told them that they would send this video to um, five people of the opposite sex, all the participants were heterosexual, just to simplify the study design. Uh, and that these five people of the opposite sex who were all around their age, they were their peers, um, would send them back one video each with feedback, basically telling them whether they would date them or not. Um, and so obviously participants were randomly assigned to either be very popular, so receiving all positive comments from these five peers of the opposite sex or receiving uh, negative feedback, like anything from getting all rejections to all positive responses. And what we found is, for example, for men, but not for women, men who received more rejections reported um, less support for casual sex than men who received more positive responses. So um, 
in this experiment, um, we showed that it seems that the mating feedback that people receive in the mating market can affect um, their mating strategies. Um, so yeah, so this one example of how we manipulated the mating conditions that people are in, and it seems that even like a short-term manipulation in the lab managed to kind of shift some attitudes towards casual sex. Um, and this kind of fits in the literature that shows that men more than women are attuned to their mate value uh, and to shifts in their mate value and, um, and respond accordingly by shifting their mating strategies. Um, and I should also say that this effect we found in uh, men who, who self-rated their mate value before participating in the dating game as low or average, uh, while people who um, self-perceive to have very high mate value were not affected by the feedback. So even if they got all rejections, it seemed like um, dating feedback doesn't affect the, the attitudes uh, towards casual sex of those men that think they are popular nonetheless um, with people of the opposite sex. Mm -hmm. But do you know if that effect is influenced by, for example, personality traits or socio-sexual orientation, for example? So we control for self-perceived mate value in that case, okay. um, not socio-sexual orientation. And we found a partial mediation via positive affect. So um, the man uh, uh, who received, uh, men who received more rejections reported lower positive affects or lower positive emotions like happiness, pride, and so on. The men who received fewer rejections and in turn men with lower positive affect um, reported less support for casual sex um, than men with uh, higher positive affect. So it seemed that receiving romantic rejections might curb men's enthusiasm and happiness, again, their positive emotions, and then in turn makes men more against casual sex. And of course, there have been other experiments that pretty much have um, also manipulated dating, um, dating popularity, not in the exact same of, as our experiment, but um, in similar ways. And it seemed that it is a consistent finding that when men are rejected, they usually revert to a more more opposition towards casual sex. And I think that even if we look at um, the outside world, um, I know that you've talked to both of my PhD supervisors, uh, Rob Brooks and Candice Blake, right? You have interviewed them and they have, for example, done a lot of work um, with Twitter and for example, incels. Um, so for those who might not be aware of um, who incels are, they're, um, uh, they call themselves involuntary celibate men. So uh, it's an internet movement, we, we could say, um, of men that cannot find um, romantic partners. And so they usually um, express certain maybe misogynistic um, attitudes in, on the internet and uh, usually are um, against um, feminism or sexual liberalism and so on. 
And so it seems in this experiment um, that there is this tendency or this casual ef causal effect uh, that men were romantically rejected then become more against more sexually permissive um, attitudes. But this is just one example of um, of the experimental manipulations I've used to show this this relationship between mating market circumstances and um, and uh, social political attitudes. And I have to say that this was this was a small effect, and I'd be curious to see if people use different types of, of manipulations to to measure to um, simulate romantic rejection or acceptance and um, if they replicate um, this effect um, because I think it's just interesting to see how this mating feedback that we get actually then you know impacts the way we see society and and our attitudes towards our own sexuality and that of others um in another big experiment um that is published in adaptive human behavior and physiology um we manipulated um the quality of participants mating competitors. So we told participants to enter their county. This was an online experiment. It wasn't in person. Um, and we collected data from US participants. Uh, we told participants to enter their US county. And then we told them we have collected data from people of your same age and sex that live in your county. And these are all the characteristics. And we manipulated either, either the physical characteristics of their same-sex peers, of participants' same-sex peers, or um, their incomes to see whether having very attractive or very wealthy um, competitors uh, would affect social political attitudes as well. And I should note that we didn't find a main effect um, a direct effect of the manipulation, but we found that um, this, um, these primes of mating, mating competitors, this information on the mating competitors affected participants' perceptions of their same-sex peers. So on average, uh, the more attractive, for example, the physical characteristics of same-sex peers, uh, the more on average participants rated them, perceived them to be more attractive, mm -hmm. And in turn, perceiving your competitors more attractive uh, made both men and women uh, more supportive of traditional gender roles, um, such as that men should um, pay for dates or um, women, uh, for example, should be um, should should take on roles of mothers and wives, um, these sort of dimensions. Um, and same things for income. So the higher we told participants that their same-sex peers' incomes were, the more the wealthier they were perceived to be by participants, and that in turn also made participants more um, more inclined to support traditional gender roles. And the idea is that perhaps uh, when per when people perceive that their competitors are really formidable because they're very attractive or have very high incomes, um, that perhaps makes people want to uphold attitudes that 
make things more more conservative so that um, there is less competition on the mating market to acquire and retain mates. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's all very interesting. So perhaps uh, these effects that you're talking about, I mean, exposing people to different cues coming from the mating market, from potential competitors and potential mates, I mean, those would be probably the reasons why people, in fact, care about um, the dominant mating strategies that are going around in their milieu, let's say, because, I mean, that could potentially yeah. improve or worsen their prospects in terms of, for example, if you're more conservative, finding a mate that is perhaps more monogamous and more interested in long-term relationships and things like that. And if you are more short-term oriented, uh, and if you live in a more conservative place, perhaps it's harder for you to uh, engage and have relationships with several different partners. I mean, that's the reason why people care about those sorts of things, right? Sure. Um, that's correct. The, the more or less, um, I just add like, um, not, not a correction, but just to, 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 to better explain this relationship between mating market cues, mm -hmm. um, and sociopolitical attitudes and mating strategies. Um, it's more than, well, first of all, the data that I collected, I have to say, is uh, mostly all from Western countries um, where people more or less can choose um, the mating strategies that they want. Uh, there's a lot of freedom um, in that, more or less. Um, so basically, um, people are attuned to changes in their mating market because they can um, choose the mating strategies that are more convenient for them that eventually are gonna maximize the reproductive success based on those mating market circumstances. So for example, uh, let's say you're a man and in the first experiment that I talked about, um, you might think that you have average mate value so that usually allows you um, to compete for mates so sometimes you're successful sometimes you're not so you might have a mixed strategies like maybe you're open to having short-term uh, casual sex uh, but let's say that all of a sudden you try um, to approach uh, many different mates and you receive a lot of rejections that might shift your perceived mate value and you might think that actually your mate value is lower than what you thought so then you might shift your mating strategies accordingly and then become more against casual sex you don't want to have casual sex yourself and you're against other people having casual sex because you know it's going to be harder for you to find and retain a mate um, and, um, and these are not like uh, new concepts in evolutionary psychology. I mean, there's lots and lots of work um, showing that um, mate value, self-perceived mate value is one of the traits that, um, that can regulate basically pe people's social or sexual orientation that can influence their, um, their mating strategies. Um, and a lot of evolutionary psychology, I mean, uh, for example, 
it, it focuses on um, average sex differences. And, and it is like a, a cross-cultural finding that, for example, men on average, not all men against all women, but on average men are more open to casual sex usually um, than women are. But there is also a lot of within-sex variation. And, uh, and so that within-sex variation is influenced by individual traits and also it can be influenced by um, changing mating market circumstances. Um, so these experiments that I just talked about was just ideas to test whether even just a, a short-term manipulation of this mating market condition can result in people shifting their attitudes um, to, um, to adapt basically to the changing mating circumstances to do uh, something that maximizes their mating interests and their um, and eventually their mating success. Um, yeah, I hope I'm not rambling too much and uh, it all makes sense. No, no, yes, it makes perfect, perfect sense. Yeah. So, uh, but the do factors like, for example, age and gender also influence people's political orient or political behavior in general? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, uh, they all like there's so many individual factors, including um, sex, age, uh, sex or gender, age, and social sexual orientation, for example, they all play a role. Um, regarding to um, gender, um, a lot of people try to basically, there's lots of literature that tries to understand whether it is men or women who are on average more conservative um, than the other um, gender. But through my research and I mean also many other researchers have also found that it depends on the social political dimension that you're looking at. So again, I just um, talked to you about um, average sex differences in um, the preference for casual sex. So cross-culturally men on average um, say self-report and are observed to have more casual sex in some cases than, um, than women. Uh, but um, what did I want to say? Um, for other, for other sociopolitical dimensions is the opposite. For example, again, I was interested in people's attitudes towards traditional gender roles and um, certain sexist attitudes. Again, like um, there is this um, dimension called benevolent sexism. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a form of sexism that is apparently benevolent towards women. Um, for example, is ideas that men want to protect women, uh, take care of women, but uh, is a form of sexism because it still stereotypes women as the weaker sex um, and some uh, and the sex that needs to be taken care of and so on. Um, so I found in in pretty much in all the experiments that have measured this dimension that men are on average um, more into these traditional gender roles than women are, which I thought it was 
an interesting finding because it, it seems maybe uh, very uh, clearly man, you know, like to, to, to some social psychologists or feminist thinkers is like clearly men are the more sexist sex. But there are also other um, social psychological theories, like sexual economics theory, uh, that what that was proposing that um, in this mating market, women, for example, usually are the ones who exchange sex for resources more than men. And I'm not saying that that is always the case or that this theory is correct, but they this this theory basically proposed that um, women's um, should prefer on average more than men a society where sex is considered precious so they can form long-term monogamous relationships and basically use sex to obtain commitment um, from men um, so this theory technically should um, from this theory, you, they would derive that, um, that women, uh, more than men should then want a society that, um, uh, that wants these traditional gender roles where men take care and protect women. But throughout my study, I, was, I always found the opposite, that men more so than women self-report uh, that we should have a society where women take on traditional motherly and um, motherly and wife roles and men should pay for women for dates and protect and take care of women. Um, and what do I want to do about that? that? That, of course, like the, the way I've measured it is not through behavior or observation, is self-report. So, of course, self-report can have bias if people choose to not be truthful in the way that they answer questions or maybe like social des desirability biases, they respond in a way that thinks that they think would make them appear socially desirable, but it's not really what they think. However, a lot of the experiments I did were, you know, completely anonymous and, and most people responded to these questions in the privacy of their home. So you have to assume that more or less people are responding um, truthfully. Um, which actually brings me back to when we were talking about the experiments that I did, I should say that, again, all these attitudes that I measured were self-report measures and not behaviors. So, again, there can be some bias in self-report measures, so it would be interesting to see in future research if people can manipulate these mating market cues and see whether that actually affects not only attitudes, but also behaviors. Mm -hmm. And what explains things like the cultural suppression of female sexuality? Where does that come from? Yeah, so I think um, that the phenomenon of the cross of the cultural suppression of female sexuality is very interesting because again, um, there's this double standard that in a lot of society, usually women um, have to face negative consequences, stereotypes for engaging in casual sex more so than men. So it's really interesting to try and understand what might cause that 
um, these double standards in general, but also why uh, women's sexuality is so suppressed in some cases and, you know, it's not okay. Um, this idea that it's not okay for women to have sex with how many men they might want to. Um, so again, a lot of theories focus on sex differences in the suppression of female sexuality. So for example, they want to ask, is it men who suppress the female sexuality more than women, or is it women that do so? And while on average, there might be sex differences in the extent to which people suppress female sexuality, there's tons and tons of research that shows that each sex um, participates in the suppression of female sexuality. So for example, men might suppress um, the sexuality of their own mate because they wanna have control um, and avoid uh, control over their mates and avoid cheating, uh, for example, and they want to have paternity certainty. So if they invest, for example, time and energy in their mates, they want to be sure that then their offspring are their own. And women might use, might suppress the sexuality of other women as a sort of a competitive tactic um, because they want to retain their own mates, for example, in a, in a mating sphere, or even like usually physical attractiveness, for example, gives many advantages over several spheres of society. So they might want to, um, com like, to compete, basically they suppress the sexuality of other women to compete uh, with them and make sure um, that they don't lose mate and resources to, to these other women. Um, but what I think it's interesting is that things are obviously more complicated than that. It's not just about men's and women's interests but there are many other individual characteristics other than one's gender um, that can influence uh, the, um, um, the suppression of, of female sexuality. For example, um, a very cool paper by Candice, Candice Blake, again, one of my um, PhD supervisors, um, she found that, um, I'm pretty sure this was in Tunisia, Tunisia. Mm -hmm. um, and um, she found that um, men on average support women's veiling, the veiling of women uh, more so than women do, but women with more sons support veiling uh, more so than women with fewer sons. Um, so um, if we interpret veiling as a way to kind of restrict women's freedom in that, co in this, that specific context um, where, um, and as a way to suppress women's sexuality, then it's not just gender that influences who wants um, veiling more, but it's also, for example, the gender of kin that might influence attitudes towards veiling. Um, as another example, um, in countries where um, women economically depend on men, so in countries with high gender inequality, uh, attitudes towards sexual permissiveness are more negative 
because um, men, for example, if they invest all these resources in their partners, they want to uh, have paternity certainty. And also women who economically depend on their male partners might also want to make sure that uh, they don't lose um, their partners. So um, the people are more against um, uh, sexual, uh, more against sexual permiss per permissive attitudes. Uh, but also to use the same example, veiling. Um, there is one paper. I think I think the lead author was um, Farid Padzui. I hope that's how you pronounce um, their last name. Um, and they also found that in um, in areas that are more um, gender unequal, where men economically depend, where women economically depend on their male partners, um, uh, there is more support for religious veiling as well. Um, so yeah, so that's the way I've been looking at um, the cultural suppression of female sexuality and I've uh, been working on reviewing the evidence on the cultural suppression of female sexuality. I should say that uh, that review paper is not published yet, so uh, it's not being peer reviewed, but just discussing what um, what I found in the literature so far. Mm -hmm. Right. So, yeah. uh, I mean, regarding this relationship between uh, mating strategies and sociopolitical orientation, there's just one aspect that I would like to ask you specifically about. I mean, we've already covered several different things here, but when it comes to same-sex rights or homosexual yeah. or gay rights, whatever you want to call it, uh, why is it that w that's one of the domains where a mating, preferred mating strategies manifests itself in terms of support or opposition to it? I mean, why would that be a big deal for people if there are people with homosexual, with a, a homosexual orientation that would be able to, I mean, get partners or marry or whatever? So this is partly based again from on work from David Pinsov and Marty Asselton and also then um, my own research. Um, there is this strong correlation between people's social sexuality and their attitudes towards same-sex rights, whereby people who are more sexually restricted are more against same-sex rights. And I think that the point you make is very valid. It's like, why, why would that be? Um, also, like heterosexual people often compete on a different mating market than, than homosexual people, mm. so they shouldn't even be bothered technically by what homosexual people do. Um, and I completely, I, I agree with, with, that, with that point in the sense that you make a good point, what would that be? But I, in the way that, um, again, uh, Pinsov and Asselton, uh, made it, um, which I agree with, I think some people might have psychological adaptations that basically make them, make them against what might interfere with their conservative sexual attitudes. So I think a lot of sexually restricted people perceive homosexuals to be against, you know, the the, the traditional marriage values, and um, some even there's these stereotypes, especially for gay men, more than lesbian women, 
uh, that gay men are promiscuous. And so even though these are not necessarily conscious processes, sexually restricted people might perceive homosexual people and gay men to be, um, to be again, promiscuous. And so it's against their own interests and they cannot really, again, in these unconscious um, adaptive processes, distinguish between homosexual and heterosexual promiscuity. They're just against anything that is uh, not their in their conservative sexual interests. And so for this reason, they're against same-sex rights. Um, and of course, like whether gay men are promiscuous or not, of course, this shouldn't, you know, um, affect like people's attitudes. But I think that there is enough um, enough evidence to show that this seems to be the case. And again, like this is not the only explanation for why people are against gay rights. There's, you know, many, many, many other factors that go into that. But, um, but yeah, it seems like your social sexual orientation and how comfortable you are with casual sex and sexual permissiveness also influences um, your attitudes towards homosexuality. Mm -hmm. Do you know if sex ratios also play a role here? I mean, in cases where there's many more women, or I mean, in this case, we have to look at things differently. It's, it's the sex that is in the minority that usually dictates the rules of the mating market. So does that influence yep. also people's uh, preferred uh, mating strategies and political values in this case? Yes, yes, absolutely. I think um, uh, bias sex ratio is a huge um, characteristic of the mating market that influences people's attitudes and behaviors. Um, and I mean, there's the seminal work by um, Gutentag and Secord, and I hope I'm saying the last names correctly, um, um, that showed that um, um, when the sex ratio is male bias, so there are more men than women, um, usually things become more conservative. Um, and men really invest in their partners, for example, um, and uh, marriage rates are higher. Um, when instead men are in the minority and the sex ratio is female biased, um, then things, uh, it becomes the opposite, casual sex becomes more, more common and um, yeah, there's less investment by men in the relationship, for example. And this is thought to be because, again, on average, uh, men's preferred mating strategy is more so to have um, short-term relationships and casual sex, and women um, preferred mating strategies more to um, uh, to maintain long-term relationships and commitment. Again, this is just average differences. So of course, there are many women who engage in casual sex and want to do so, etc. But on average, there seems to be this um, this gender difference. And so when women are in the minority, they, let's say, become the sex with the more bargaining power. 
so men adapt their mating strategy to match those of women a little bit more and when men are in the minority they have the, the higher power in, the, in sexual relationships so to speak and so women adapt their mating strategies to match men's mating strategies a little bit more. Mm -hmm. um, so that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yes, it make, makes perfect sense. So j just another question before we talk a little bit about your work on laughter. Um, yeah. when, uh, so do preferred mating strategies and cues people pick from the mating market also influence their political attitudes toward economic issues like wealth redistribution and stuff like that? Yeah, so I um, maybe briefly, briefly mentioned it um, earlier in this conversation that I found some support, although was a, a little bit inconsistent, that people who um, self-reported that they were um, sexually unrestricted also, for example, reported more support for um, increasing the minimum wage and access to healthcare to um, to um, to everybody. Um, and these are kind of the, the economic dimensions that I measured in my studies. Um, and I also found in in uh, the first experiment that I did, um, there was a large online experiment with all, over a thousand participants. Um, in this experiment, again, participant. Um, we led participants to believe that they were in an online dating market and we gave them a percentage of how popular they were with prospective mates and how big their mating market is, so how many um, ideal mates were available for them in this online environment. And I found an effect uh, whereby um, people who had I think hundreds of mating opportunities were a little bit uh, more self-reported, more support for increasing the minimum wage and access to healthcare, uh, more so than people who were popular with uh, just a few dozens, um, and people who were popular with thousands and thousands of um, of uh, potential mates. So this interesting kind of complex uh, effect. Um, in a second experiment, which is uh, the first experiment I talked about today, where participants came into the lab and they ostensibly participated in a dating game, I didn't find any direct effects of um, dating popularity on how popular they were on, on, um, on these attitudes, but I found again that uh, participants who were less popular, they reported lower positive affect, so low, less positive emotions than people who were more popular. And in turn, men who reported lower, less positive emotions uh, were also more against um, increasing the minimum wage and access to healthcare uh, than people who reported higher positive affect, uh, positive emotions. So. Um, there is some evidence that perhaps indirectly, and in, in the case of the first experiment, directly mating market cues and mating strategies might influence um, these more economic uh, sociopolitical attitudes, but I think um, a lot of some of my findings were a bit inconsistent or they weren't predicted a priori so we need to further explore I think this relationship in future in future work um, so yeah yeah okay 
So, I mean, I know you did this work a while ago, but uh, I still wanted to ask you a little yeah. bit about laughter. So, yeah. why did you study it and what uh, specifically did you study about it? Could you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, sure. Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, so I studied laughter. I, I'm not an expert, I should say, on, on laughter, but I had the chance to participate in two very cool uh, cross-cultural projects on laughter. Um, and this was all the way back when I was an undergraduate at UCLA um, with Dan Fessler. Um, we, they, I would say, the lead authors were interested in looking at laughter because laughter is a nonverbal form of vocalization of communication that can really kind of signal, it can be considered as a cue of affiliation between two people that laugh together. Mm -hmm. um, so it might have had a very important role in human societies and in human evolution um, to shape cooperation, right? So in one, in the first project that I was part of, um, again, the, the focus was on co-laughter. So again, when, when people, when two people laugh at the same time. Um, and what we did was that basically we had participants listen to very, very short clips of two people, and this where was from real conversation, laughing together. And about half of these audio recordings, if I remember correctly, it was about half half, um, were between friends, and the other half were between strangers. And people with uh, pretty good accuracy, I think definitely over um, chance, over 50%, I think it was like between 55-ish and 60% accuracy, they could distinguish laughter between friends and laughter between strangers. So it seems that regardless of people's native language and culture, people are very good at, um, uh, at, at detecting the affiliation in, in laughter. So it seems to be, again, cross-culturally, uh, a pretty good signal of, um, of, of affiliation. And in the second project, um, people also listen to very short clips of, um, of laughter again. And in this case, the clips um, were recorded, I think, from, from female friends having conversations and some of the laugh was spontaneous. And some, in some other clips, the laugh was um, volitional, it was, it was fake. Fake, fake laughing, basically, um, um, forced fake laugh. Um, and again, people were very, very accurate cross-culturally across the world to, to guess which one was, was spontaneous real laughter and which one was fake laughter. Again, indicating that laughter might be a good signal of, of affiliation and people are really good at, at perceiving. Mm -hmm. Right. So. Uh... Just before we go, would you yeah. like to mention where people can find you and your work on the internet? Sure. Um, so right now I am working, um, as you mentioned at the beginning, the Social Neuroendocrinology Lab at Nipissing University in Canada. 
Um, we didn't get a chance to talk about it much, but I'm kind of integrating the study of testosterone or testosterone influence social attitudes in my work. Um, I don't have, um, we're working on a few publications, so hopefully that uh, they'll come out soon and maybe we'll have another chat <laughs> about all that work. Um, but, uh, sorry, I went into this uh, long-winded um, spiral <laughs> just to say that, um, um, that that's my current affiliation. And um, I don't have a website, something else I should um, be working on, but uh, you, people can find me on Twitter. And my handle is at Francesca R L U B. And uh, also on Google Scholar, you can find my work. This is Francesca Luberti. Okay, so thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. It's been great. Hi, guys. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. To keep the channel sustainable, I would like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there starting at $1. If you could, it would be a great help. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. You can also support me on PayPal. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perugel Larson, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunder, Ricardo Vladimir, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whitting, Bordarno Wolf, Tim Hollis, Eric Alenia, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Voss, Bo Weingard, Rebecca Newberger Goldstein, then Demetrio, Robert Windegger, Rui Nassi, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Colombo, Jorge Spinha, Phil Cavana, Mark Blythe, Robert Winguanzo, Michael Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Yugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Fergal Cusson, Ivan Bodrenko, Al Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrand, Oslem Bullet. Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Weira, Tom Hamel, David Sloan, Wilson, Yassila, Dez Araújo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dmitry Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Rosmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostasevsky, Nalek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Hellman, João Linhares, Lida Cosmidis, I'm Afzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paulo Tolentino, João Barbosa, Jules Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortez, Ursula Litzke, Denise Cook, Scott, Jackery Fish and Tim Duffy. My producers is our web, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafiniak, Ian Gilligan, Luis Caetano, Tom Vanegdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Guidi, Sardis France, Thomas Trumbull and Nuno Welder. And my executive producers, Michel Rugieski, Rosie, James Pratt, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Codriano, and Bogdan Candivitz. Thank you for all.